for me, Urdu music is the place of absolute emotional connection. And it's not about anybody else, right? To the extent that it was about anybody, it was, as the book of the dedication to my book says, I mean, the dedication is for the women of my mother's generation of whom so much was asked. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Broad Pods, Creative Thought and Expression, hosted by Ravani. This episode is another in the series of interviews that we're having with participants of the Pakistan Literature Festival being held in London. We have with us a very, very accomplished and brilliant lady, Sadia Abbas. Now, Sadia is a professor of the Department of English at Rutgers University, and she's also the director of the Center of European Studies at the university. She has a PhD from Brown University. She's achieved multiple merit awards. She has a number of publications to her name. The most prominent of these are the books that she's published, which include The Empty Room and At Freedom's Limit, Islam and the Postcolonial Predicament. She is also the co-founder and editor of Ideas and Futures, which is a cultural and interdisciplinary multimedia journal. So Sadia, thank you very much for being here with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I do want to make a slight adjustment to that introduction, if I may. In the English department at Rutgers Neua and the center I direct is at Rutgers New Brunswick. Thank you. Apologies for missing that. No, 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 not at all. Got it. Okay, thank you. So, Sadia, I will request you to start by introducing yourself and your work to the audience. I have, of course, given a very brief headline introduction about your role in key publications. It would be nicer to hear it from you and in your own words about what work you do. Thank you very much. You know, it's hard to say, partly because I do, or I rather, I wear so many different hats. I'm a scholar who is trained in Renaissance literature in English. I'm a Milton scholar, although I've never published on Milton. I was trained as a Milton scholar and a John Donne scholar, but I'm also trained as a post-colonialist. And I went after I got my PhD into post-colonial studies more squarely, although the Renaissance element has never really deserted me. At the same time, I suppose I I also wanted to write novels, and it's a desire I resisted in odd sorts of ways. Partly, I've always said, because I am a Milton scholar. So for me, it was always like, well, if I can't write Paradise Lost or Arcadario or something, what's the point? So I suppose it was a kind of humility, or you could call it a kind of extraordinary overweening ambition. I don't know which it was, which is like, if I can't write that, then what's the point? But I also didn't think I could. On the other hand, what happened was that I found that I couldn't resist writing fiction. It sort of would impress itself upon me. And I would find myself just writing little fragments over the years. And I couldn't stop writing poetry, which I used to write as an adolescent. And once I got my PhD and got a tenure track position, although I considered giving it all up and then writing fiction before I did that in 2006, I decided to go back to a novel I had started in 1999, which started as a short story, and realized I could do it and realized that I love doing it. And if there's anything to say about me, I suppose if I wanted to introduce myself at this stage in my life, I don't want to choose I haven't chosen. People want me to say that I prefer fiction to academic work or that I prefer writing about art, which I also do to to this or that, or that I prefer the journalistic writing that I do, which I also do, or that I prefer the, you know, I also direct the Center for European Studies. But I find that all of this sort of somehow feeds my energy. 
And so I don't want to choose. What I do want to do at any given moment is dedicate myself to what's at hand. And I think that's what I do. And it's what I think continues to feed all the different passions. Because one of the things about me, I mean, I used to worry when I was younger that I was just too scattered. And of course, so did my teachers because I want to do so many different things. But what I've learned over time is that I'm not, that I accumulate new passions and I have polymathic aspiration. But when it comes down to it, I accumulate new passions, but I don't let go of the old ones. And I like that. That's incredibly rich and versatile. And I'm going to pick up on some of the points as we go along in the conversation. But I think what immediately strikes me is that in today's world, there is a lot of focus on specialization. And yet, if we look at education and everything else in the past, it was a lot more interdisciplinary in the past, right? You didn't have to be a career writer only, you could be doing a number of other things. And we probably do not have that as much now. Perhaps life is busier and more demanding, or perhaps there's been a mindset shift. But I always think that it's a lot more refreshing to have voices that come from different backgrounds, different professional experiences, because you learn from whatever you do. And when you write after that, I think there's always a new perspective and approach to that. So yeah, how do you find in your experience teaching and so on? And with the academic work that you do, what do you think are the key influences in the present times that impact art and literature and the kind of output that comes out of communities? You do mention your specialization in post-colonial literature. You do mention mention this whole thing about in the conversation that we had yesterday prior to this chat, you did mention how the multiple influences on your identity, having lived and worked in different parts of the world, having interacted with different people. There's a lot that's going into your own writing, but equally you would be observing that in modern literary trends as well. So could you share a little bit about that? That's a big one. I'm not sure I quite know how to begin with that. I mean, what are the influences upon me intellectually? Well, I've drawn them from different ways, places, and they're literary as well, right? So I'll start with the literary influences. So I would say that some of the formative intellectual influences on me were Angela Carter. I say this because I found myself rereading her recently. Derek Walcott, and I've suddenly found myself returning to his work and the book I'm writing. He's the reason I became a post-colonialist, was his poem, Another Life. I would say that Imaginary Homelands by Salman Rushdie was a huge influence because he was writing some very important anti-racist stuff, which people have forgotten about in 1990s. So, you know, when he wrote Commonwealth Literature Does Not Exist or when he was taking on the British government for its racism. Again, we just remember him through the Satanic Versus controversy. But for me, Imaginary Homelands was huge and his anti-racism was huge. But then intellectually, there's also somebody else, William Empson, the great literary critic, was very important. But then I would say that there are Urdu literary influences that were huge for me too, because Urdu and Heather has become a massive influence for me. Massive. And I'm writing about her now in my current book. I'm also writing, Isma Chukhtai was huge for me. Ghalib is hard to get away from, but I came to Ghalib like a lot of elite Anglophone kids of my generation through music. Fez was huge for me, but again, I came to him through music because music is very important for me. Hamdei Kinge by Iqbal Bano was a song that I listened to over and over again when I came to college because for me, it was very hard to leave Pakistan. I never wanted to leave, right? And I left in some sense, partly because at that point, who would give a job to somebody with a PhD in English literature? This was 1988 when I came to college. And partly because I had a very fraught relationship with my parents. 
And to be an elite Pakistani woman with a fraught relationship with one's family in a culture like ours is very difficult. And so in some sense, it's almost like I gave up Pakistan, which I love dearly, and Karachi, frankly, to be honest with you, that is still a city that can, that can make my pulse beat harder and quicker. Uh, largely because I didn't know how to be there as a young woman with no support from the family who belonged to a certain class. But I came to college, and paradoxically with the support of my father, who was quite reactionary in other ways. But the way that that homesickness manifested itself was through listening constantly to Urdu music. That includes Bollywood. I love dancing. So I listen to a lot of South Asian music, right? Even though I love English, but like sort of uh, European classical Baroque, I love Motown, I love blues, I love a whole bunch of things. I love soul, I love Brit pop. Of course, I'm a child of the 80s. But for me, Urdu music is the place of absolute emotional connection. So I came to poetry, which of course was quoted all around me. And I don't come from an Anglophone family. We're an elite family. But the joke that my mother cracks is that, I don't know if this is a bilingual, if I can say something in Urdu for a moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, please do. So my mother will say, Beta, but we're an Urdu phone family. So we speak Urdu at home. But then I was this weird, odd, this weird sort of plant that was created because I was taught English and I was very, very good at English, but it's actually because I'm very good at language. And one of the spaces of language that was so utterly important for me was that we're also a Shia family. And you'll see this in the novel. It comes in in a very weird way because I have a description of a majlis and of a noha. But Shia North Indian culture is very literary, right? The Marcia is a very literary, you know, think about Anis. The majlis is a very literary form. So it was, and remember that for about at least two months a year, all Shia children are exposed to this incredible oratory and this incredible poetry. And this was my formation. And I tried to sneak it into the novel. So influence in my case is a very peculiar thing. I would say that I'm formed equally by Shia literature, Urdu music, and English literature. That includes Keats and Wilfred Owen, and later in life, John Donne. Keats, when I was 18, because all 18-year-old girls, of course, must love Keats if they're slightly pretentious. And later, Milton. And Milton I read when I was 16 as a Pakistani Muslim kid. So it's a very kind of weird blend, but it's a blend that I find very liberating. Because it actually meant that when I pay attention to it, it makes no sense. And not making sense when you want to be creative, or even if you are creative, whether you want to be or not, is in my view, a terrific thing. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, there's so much I want to say and comment on. I think one of the things that strikes me immediately is when you talk about being homesick, having to leave Karachi, even Pakistan in general, I do find that to be a quite a common experience that people have to because the country is not necessarily accommodating for everyone and particularly not for independent women. And probably still isn't up to this day, although things have changed. But To your point about being homesick, turning to art and culture, I think that is very, very relatable. And I think it's beautiful how you've described your influences from family, the Urdu-speaking Shia, you know, influences that you have had from home, listening to all of that. And then, you know, obviously the English writers and poets that you've mentioned. So thank you for sharing that. We've discussed briefly about your identity and more than identity, I think the influences around you 
I'd be keen to hear from you on how you see people of multiple identities, so to speak, people of a non-distinct identity. You may have South Asian Pakistani roots, but you know, they lived and reside in different parts of the world. They've picked up on different influences. Obviously, you know, literature starts to evolve and change. So as an academic, could you comment a little bit about how those trends and changes start to impact writing? Writing is funny, I think, at this particular historical moment, because, I mean, and this is the moment where my leftist structuralist tendencies are going to, as an academic are going to manifest themselves, right? I mean, I should say before I go any further, I mean, for all the, you know, conflict between myself and my family, they're also an incredibly Urdu articulate family. And they're great with language, especially my father, but also my mother. So it was a family of language, even when we fought, which we did. We fought articulately and with eloquence, which of course meant that we were more destructive and more lethal, but it also meant that we were able to. But language was both wound and gift. And it's an UP family. So that comes with a certain courtly UP irony. And my next novel is actually about irony in some sense, even though it's very, very British. It's, I mean, it's set in, in an Anglophone, very English context. But the academic problem, right? I mean, on the one hand, we like to think in the contemporary moment that we are more open, but we're not. And this is something that you said earlier as well. Professionalization has actually, which I link up to the moment of neoliberalism, has actually been a narrowing influence. And that's there in the publishing industry too. I mean, there are all kinds of writers who would never get published today, except by very, very, very crazy independent presses. I can't imagine Moby Dick being published today. I can't imagine Akka Darya being published in the West. I can't imagine even Faulkner being published today. He's too difficult. And the first thing they teach you in creative writing programs, which are the engines of marginalization today, is to cater to, the, to a low common denominator. It's all about accessibility and readability. And so where's innovation, difficulty, illegibility, modernism, any of those things? So that's one thing. The second thing is because it's neoliberal and it's late capitalist, we have all of this mediation agents, publishers. I'm probably burning my own bridges here, but that's fine. I'm, I'm apparently very good at burning bridges, I've been told. But my point is, right, so over and over again, there's this kind of ruthless commodification because when there's this many people involved, there are that many more incomes to deal with. So the idea is always going to be like, I was told the empty room would never be published by one of lead, or somebody said about me, two of us who had introduced me, by one of India's leading agents, that the MP room would never be published. Urvashi Batalia published it. And of course, I didn't get any money for it at the time. I think I've gotten like $2,000 in overall over all the time that it's been around. I don't mind. I didn't want to make money out of that novel because I was afraid that that novel would be marketed as an oppressed Muslim woman narrative if I published it in the West. And I didn't want that. I call it the Muslim woman carnival. So I didn't want that. I wrote the book and I actually considered not publishing it because as they say in Urdu, I'm a little bit what they say, hapti, right? I'll do like crazy shit, right? Sorry, I don't know if that's inappropriate. But I also, my line was, I have a job. I'm, I'm doing fine. I have an income. I make a lot more than anybody ever told me I'd make. It's not a lot. I mean, I could have made more if I had gone on to do something sensible, as my mother said, like a bank bank or MBA or something, but I'm doing well, mashallah, right? I'm okay. So for me, but you know what convinced me in the end was my students. 
I have a lot of young Muslim students, men and women. And they said, Professor Abbas, you have to finish this book for us. Because I said, you know, I don't want it to become part of the carnival. And they said, yes, but we exist too. You got to do it for us. So my solution at that point was just to give it. So when Urvashi Batalia said she loved it, and I have tremendous respect for Urvashi. Back in the 80s when we were teenagers, Urvashi and Ritu Menon set up Kali Press for Women. And it was huge. It was this great first feminist South Asian press. So when Urvashi said she liked the novel, I was like, oh my God, I was right. I mean, if, if my arthritic limbs would have prevented, uh, pre- permitted it, I would have turned cartwheels. But I thought, you can have the book. If you will put your imprimatur on it, I'll, anything is fine. And she said, we don't have a lot of money. I said, I don't care. So, I mean, professionalization, even in the academy, has been a problem. It means we don't take risks anymore. But at the same time, money has always been a problem for artists. It's been an, and so I think we need to actually historicize this and think about what that means. Does it mean that we need state support? Does it mean that we need to find community support? But it also means as a community considered, you work for the community organization, that we have to be willing to hear things we don't want to. Because if we want our communities to produce, and if we want to say that we care about what our communities produce, then we have to be able to support our producers and they will not always say things that we want to hear. And that's the burden on the community and the responsibility of the community. If you want more, then you have to be willing to risk. That's incredible. Thank you so much for saying that. And I am going to say, I didn't want to interrupt you at that time, but I think it's incredible that you're honest to your art and to your work. And both as somebody, again, as an academic and somebody working in the literary space and also as a writer, not wanting to compromise on the integrity of how you present yourself, on the authenticity of your work, not having it misinterpreted, not going for the money and doing it for the people who matter. In this case, it was your students. It was probably yourself as I, you know, as a writer. I think that's incredible. And you're right. What I do tend to notice, having been through a little bit of the aging process myself, very, very half-heartedly though, is that it is all very commercial. Commercial fiction is what everybody is demanding nowadays. And then there's young adult fiction as well, which is again, very, very commercial in nature. It has to be very quick paced and so on. And it does seem like, you know, what happened to the complex plots, because that's where you uncover psychological insights, you have stories, you know, that's where the actual beauty of literature lies. So yeah, I think it's incredibly refreshing that you are speaking to this. So thank you for doing that. Since you did talk about the empty room, you have referred a little bit to the process over there. Could you tell us a little bit about the creative process you took towards it as an artist, what went into the story in terms of research, influences you've already spoken about as a writer, but also how you balanced authenticity versus the audience, because ultimately there was somebody who was going to be able to, who was reading it. So was the audience at all important or did you just focus on your craft as a writer? You know, I mean, can I say neither? <laughs> I mean, probably both and neither. I mean, I'm a conceptual animal, to be honest. So for me, when I get an, a stubbornly conceptual animal, so for me, when I get caught in a kind of question, I just want to figure it out. And at that moment, it's not about me per se, although you could say that it's my problem, as in this kind of stubbornly conceptual animal. And it's not about anybody else, I, right? To the extent that it was about anybody, it was, as the book of the dedication to my book says, 
And the dedication is for the women of my mother's generation of whom so much was asked. So for me, there were a couple of questions that came into it, right? I mean, remember that I am of the generation that was the first generation to start marrying en masse outside the culture. Those of us who came to college in the late 80s in the U.S. And we came to the U.S. because the U.S. was giving scholarships. Even if we came from elite backgrounds, there was no way that most of us could afford the full, full fee. So I was on scholarship. And that doesn't take away from the elite background, because of course, if we didn't belong to the elite background at that point, we wouldn't even have been able to apply to places like Wellesley, which is where I ended up. But we couldn't afford the absurd fees, which are not even more absurd now to begin with. And of course, our parents would not have paid. My mother said, you know, you don't pay for the education of girls. There's no way not. That was part of it. But we were the first generation. And I remember this tormented conversations where our mothers are the ones who wanted us to marry within the culture and have those arranged marriages and so on. And we were falling in love or not falling in love. I mean, I, I fell in love and divorced, speaking of my honesty, which is famed and horrifies many people. But, but, but the point is, I did. And so did so many of my friends and my generation. And it was huge. But it meant breaking a cycle in which our mothers were the transitional generation because they were hyper-educated and they suddenly landed in the same marriages. In some ways, they were worse marriages than, say, my grandmother's, who was married to her cousin. And my poor Nana, for instance, was utterly bullied by my Nana because they were first cousins. And it was like, kind of thing because they were first cousins. But they also got, they got along fine. But my mother's family, generation was completely different. And I saw so many hyper-talented women in these extraordinary marriages, and especially from UP, where there was this whole culture of hum mangte, hum poochte, hum poochte, hum karte. So there was this kind of complete culture of self-erasure in which I was raised and which I had to unlearn at great personal cost. And I say this not for myself. I'm doing very well, mashallah. I'm sitting in Italy right now having a blast. And I'm off to, I'm going to London in a few days and then I'll be in Greece. And then I'll be back in Italy. You know what I mean? I fought, but I, but I also won. So I'm doing okay. There have been moments of terrible loneliness, but there's also now what I have, which is a rich and married and wonderful life. But I wasn't meant to have that life. And I certainly wasn't meant to have it as a divorcee. Right? I mean, my kids, my students, are like, right? when they see that I'm still laughing, when they're told that somebody like me isn't even meant to be happy, think about the Aurat March and how people got upset about those slogans about divorce, right? But the fact that I'm not miserable is itself an affront to a certain notion of culture. But we had to break that. So what the novel was about, to the extent that it was personal, it's not autobiographical, was trying to imagine a life for which I was groomed and which I utterly and thoroughly rejected it, but which I totally understand because the women that I admire lived it. And I don't know how the hell they did it. I have no idea how they did it, but they did. And so for me, there were two big questions. Can I write a novel that never leaves the, the home? Three big questions, let's say. The second one was, what do you do with the marriage plot as a formal device? Because my novel begins where most marriage plots end, the morning after. Tyra opens her eyes. So that's where we think everything's resolved. But of course it isn't. And then my third question was, how in that moment do these women who have never met these men these women raised on the cult of modesty, which I have rejected because I think it's punishment, but they've never met these men. You don't even know how to talk to people, right? You're not supposed to raise your eyes to a man in front of you. And the man's not supposed to look at you either. And your first encounter is sex. And then you wake up and you got to get to the bathroom and then to the kitchen. Like, how the hell do you do that? And of course, people do it every day, but I didn't. 
And so for me as a novelist and as a writer who lives a very different life, it was how do you imagine this terribly ordinary thing that becomes terribly unordinary when it comes to your imagination? The fact that he's a bad husband is ultimately irrelevant if that's the question. I mean, it's not irrelevant, but think about it. Like you open your eyes, you're raised with this modesty. I was raised with that modesty. I still have elements of it, even though I've rejected it, that particular version of it. What must it have been like for them? So that's what the novel was. Of course, as I've joked in various interviews, I reneged on my deal with myself of that the novel would never leave. And then what I did was that I also wanted a fourth question, which I'd forgotten, which was how does a woman who's from a progressive background end up in arranged marriages and an arranged marriage with somebody who's conservative? Because we don't even ask about ideology. But 1969 in Pakistan was a hyper-progressive moment. And all her family and her sibling and his friends and her friends are radicals. Her husband is not. And she has to, and I quote, grow into his personality, which is this line I was taught as well, as if a 20-year-old doesn't already have one. So I was trying to think about all of those things. So it was a conceptual question or a series of conceptual questions. How do people do all of this? I think I'm lucky that somehow or the other, it also became a readable novel. <laughs> That's sort of the accidental part. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's an incredible story of resilience, even at a personal level. Um, and to come back to your topic about how, unfortunately, a lot of these subjects are still taboo within our society. People do not want to hear about divorce. And it is a reality of life that people, we shouldn't be shying away from. And that these are questions that need to be raised. And I think the way art raises these questions, the way other young girls who are seeking that empowerment in their lives, the one that you have mentioned you found, I feel that art is a way of connecting people. It's a means of transmitting stories, sharing your power, sharing your journey with others. And it may actually inspire others, even if it is just to write, or they may just enjoy the story. It may be a cathartic experience, or they may take home something personal and find that kind of empowerment in their lives. So thank you. I think that was very, very brilliantly said. I had a few questions come to mind when you were mentioning it, when you were talking about the story. Yesterday, in our conversation, you mentioned using various other artistic forms, including calligraphy and poetry, incorporating them into the novel. So I'd love to hear, I'd love for you to share that with our listeners, to tell them a little bit more about the artistic devices that you've been using. I mean, one of my great passions, other than music, and I can't sing to save my life. So it's horrific when I sing. So I compensate by dancing, which I love, is art. I've started painting a little now. And in order to, and periodically I'll send them to Shazia Sikandar, who's a dear friend of mine. And she doesn't totally, I mean, she's very generous because she doesn't totally mock me, which is very kind of her. But I did it because I like writing about art. And my protagonist is a painter. So the first thing you could say is, right, that in some ways I wanted to imagine a visual person's engagement with the world. I'm very visual myself, but not terribly talented as a visual person. I mean, that's not what I do. So writing about a painter was also a way of giving my space to live with something that I truly love, which is art. But I was also really interested in a certain cult of silence that we have. So there's somewhere in there, in my novel, is a translation of the verse, I can't remember the last, sorry, I've had a cold for the past two days. But anyway, so Tina Sani has sung it too. But this idea of silence as beautiful and self-silencing as beautiful 
was for me, of course, totally seductive because we were raised on it, but also totally troubling. But then the question was, agar khamoshi se ya khamoshi mein like if the beauty is in silence, then what is the mode of thinking and expression? And for me, then the exploration became about art and color as a form of arranging experience. Experience that was also unbearable in some ways. Because one of the things that I missed the most, and you know, this is where the personal comes in, but not through biography, more through personal sensation, is I'm also color obsessed. So when I came from Pakistan to the U.S., I felt so color deprived. And I sometimes say that landing in the U.S. is like landing into aesthetic death because you come to, you come abroad. And, you know, the one thing you have in South Asia is this explosion of color everywhere. No one's afraid of it. And the sheer beauty of it. And I don't want to fetishize it and I don't want to orientalize it. But a clothes shop, an embroidery shop, a bangle shop. And these are not oriental experiences for us. They're not exotic experiences for us. They're everyday experiences. What child can imagine Chandrat without bangles or mehndi? And which was totally important to me. Which of us can imagine, maybe some can, and I don't want to denigrate their experience, but for me, you know, the first garara you wore as a 10-year-old at a wedding. These things matter. I learned how to do embroidery. The, the touching of cloth remains for me one of the most important grounding things. There's a lot of stuff about embroidery in my novel. Because that's how women communicate through that. I mean, I remember at my mamu's wedding, and I don't even like the man, but way back, sewing sequins onto a chunri dupatta. It was a big deal. I was 18 years old or less. No, 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 no. I wasn't even 18, God. I was 10 years old. And I sewed all my sequins myself. But this was a form of connecting with the materiality of our cultures. So here's this woman. So how do you actually talk about how this extraordinary self-silencing actually works at the level of the body? And again, as I said, I'm a conceptual animal. So of course it was a conceptual question. And for me, it was about... She paints, she arranges the entire world into paintings, people embroider, and people talk about these very, 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 very material, colorful things. So color becomes, and uh, you know, Marjorie Levinson, the, the lovely literary critic, understood this about it, and I was so touched. Color becomes one of the touchstones of the novel. And one of the great things that David Lloyd, again, another fabulous critic said was that the novel had one of the most developed color vocabularies he had encountered, right? Because color matters to me. And I would wear saffron yellow shalvar kameezas at Wellesley, not to make a statement, but because it was the only way to deal with my homesickness. So coming back to this question of khamoshi, when I'm being bitter and ironic, I joke that food and weddings and color festivity are the ways that we deal with our own dysfunction. At the same time, I would say, that it's so utterly beautiful. That's brilliant. I mean, you've really taken me back to that life of color and, you know, embroidery and a memory I'd completely forgotten, stitching sequins onto the pattas and kameezes. I think there was, yeah, we did that a lot back in the day. So yeah, incredible. And yes, you're right. It is a way of dealing with the dysfunction and it is beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time. You capture it so beautifully with your words. I'm very keen to read the novel and to actually read that and live that beauty as I do. So thank you for sharing that. Just a final question. Again, I apologize. My questions are pretty long and loaded. So feel free to 
to take what you will from this. I'd love to hear more about other projects that you're working on. You did mention yesterday that you have a few ongoing projects. You've mentioned in this conversation about building a lot of irony into a novel that you're currently working on. And you also are the founder of a journal called Ideas and Futures. So I'd be very keen for you to tell me and the listeners more about your projects. Oh, gosh. <laughs> thank you. For one thing, you know, loaded questions are a gift. So I want to thank you for taking the time to both ask me the questions, give me the time to answer them. I have way too many projects because as everybody keeps telling me, I'm slightly crazy, which is true. I am. But so I'm finishing up a book right now called Space in Another Time, an essay. That's an academic book. A Space in Another Time, an essay on ruins, monuments and the management of life. And it's really about... Uh, well, rather neoclassical discourses, enlightenment discourses of ruins in the Western tradition and how they are linked to colonialism in the 18th century and how those discourses in Greece, in Turkey, in North America and in India and what is now Pakistan lead to certain contemporary tendencies of ethno-nationalism, fascism, racism, nationalism in general, but also what the colonial foundations of that are. So for instance, I have a chapter on translation and Hindutva and ruins, I mean, rather, Kurtula and Heather on ruins, where I examine how she's trying to engage with the Hindu nationalism in essentially post-Babri Masjid or post-Ayodhya India. But at the same time, I'm trying to think through how a certain kind of obsession with Greek origins and ruins powers European racism and raciology, or leads to things like the Greek-Turkish population transfer, which was cited by Ambedkar, no less, as a good precedent for the partition of India and Pakistan, which I have published on, by the way. There's a piece called Unmixing on a journal called Political Concepts, which is open access, which actually talks about that. So the, that's all in the book. The next novel that I'm writing, and this one I'm more than happy to sell if somebody in Britain wants to publish it, because I think the English should read this one, is on the English suppression of colonial history and on the English suppression of basically the memory of counterinsurgency in its colonies. But I approach that because I think formally as a question of irony in the post-decolonization English novel, which sounds terribly, terribly, terribly intellectualized, but it's really then a novel about English humor or that, that, that tries to rather channel a certain kind of male English humor in, in a kind of post-60s novel in order to think through how that new humor becomes, which I have tremendous admiration for on the one hand. I mean, I grew up reading Kingsley Bloody Amos, sorry, in Karachi, and I've read My Evelyn War, and I've read I mean, Anthony Burgess, right, all before I ever set foot in the U.S. I grew up in Karachi in Singapore. But I'm really interested in how that humor becomes a mechanism of both colonial engagement and colonial and the repression of the colonial memory. So it's a very formal sort of access to that in which there are things like counterinsurgency, but it's also a novel about repression, about both political repression, but then also about psychic repression and decolonization. So, you know, Stuart Hall once said, that we're still dealing with, I think, the unresolved uh, trauma of empire, or the, the British have never dealt with the unresolved psychic trauma of empire. And that's kind of what I'm trying to work through, and that's where my intellectual work is as well. So it's kind of great fun, actually, to be able to do that. And the protagonist is a white English guy. 
So, I mean, there's not a South Asian to be seen in sight in the Nisbis novel. I mean, the Kenyan is to be seen, but not South Asians, right? Maybe one South Asian character. But the whole point is that colonialism was an international phenomenon. So that's what the next novel is. And, and irony is to me very, very interesting. And I've always wanted to find conceptual explanations. It's very hard. I mean, if you look at comedy and irony both, you'll see that as a literary critic, it's very hard to find anything in comedy or irony. Like DJ Enrichel's book, George Meredith talks about wit and comedy or whatever, but it's really hard. And I've been looking for 30 years, you know, ever since I was a student. So I'm trying to work it out. And again, for me, it's always like if I can't figure it out, it's like, you know, Plato's fly on the, what is it, the arse of the Republic or something that, that you can't quite, you keep flicking because you can't figure it out. So it's a kind of platonic itch, let's call it, right? A philosophical itch. But then there's also the fact that I have another side of me, which is, as I said earlier, right at the beginning, introducing myself, which is very collaborative. Because it's very hard for somebody like me to do the work I do in the sense that it's such an isolated thing. You have to be quiet and silent and alone in order to write. And we grew up with noise, right? One of my first poems when I came to the US, terrible poem, but anyway, is in fact about the noise of Karachi households. And that has as much to do with the fact that, you know, we have these big extended families, dysfunctional or otherwise, but still there's noise. You grow up with noise. And you sit in a corner and you never need to engage with anybody, read your book, but there's always someone there. And the doors, because it's warm in Karachi, the doors are always open, the windows are open. So there's a certain kind of porosity between the home and the street, even when you live in those gated houses in places like my parents live. But and I also think of it as a swinging door because the fly door is always a swing door, the, the insect door, which is to me emblematic metaphorically. And thank you for giving me this opportunity because I've never said this out loud anyone or written it. But the fly door is a swinging door. And my grandfather's house, which was huge and which had people coming and going all the time, my Nana's house had these huge swinging doors as well. And they weren't fly doors. But this idea of you know, people coming and going all the time. So I never reconcile to the silence of homes in America or the West. And one of the reasons I spent so much time in Greece and Italy, in small places, is because the noise is closer to homes. To my home. So that was part of it. So I love to work with people. But how do you do that and juggle this necessity of isolation? So the way I do it is I do things like I direct Center for European Studies. And then I formed Ideas and Futures with my wonderful colleague, Reza Rumi. And it was a pandemic and I was stuck in Karachi and airports had just closed. And I was having just a conniption fit because I didn't know what to do. And I was like, yeah, we've been talking about this. Let's just do it. I'm not even been talking about it. Let's just do this. And he was like, sure. And within six weeks, the website was up, believe it or not. That's how long it took because we were both crazy. And then what I decided was to build a 501c3, a nonprofit as it's called, a nonprofit, which is a 501c3 in the US, around it called Ideas and Futures, a collaborative for just and vibrant societies. We have no money right now. At some point, we'll have to apply. But the whole idea was to bring in activists, scholars, artists, and writers, and to make it a multimedia platform, which had no boundaries. We have no agenda other than to let people think in whatever their language of choice is. Meaning, whether it's literary, whether it's visual, whether it's academic, whether it's activists, we have films up there, we have scholars writing poems, we have talks, we have academic talks, we don't care. And the whole point is to disrupt the boundary policing that goes on both in the academy and outside the academy. But the other point is to be internationalist and not do what happens in the U.S., which is a thoroughly insular and provincial space, but also not do what is we're not just we want to start doing multilingual stuff. I mean, we have to do stuff up there anyway, 
multilingualism and once we have money. But the reason is that we are, I mean, this is my politics. We, I'm an internationalist. So the point is we need to be in talking to each other because if we don't, what's going to happen to us? So that's actually the project of Ideas and Futures. You can look it up. I'd be very thrilled. We welcome submissions, even if it looks like we don't. It's not true. We do. We have a quick turnaround. We have no staff. We're entirely voluntary, which means that if we're slow, it's only because we have no staff. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. Incredible hearing about this novel. I think it's a very important subject. And the way you're approaching it, it sounds like you bring a lot of artistic originality into everything, right? So to write it from a white man's perspective, as I understand it, or perhaps just to have white men in it primarily. I think it's a brilliant way of, you know, sharing that side of history. And I can't imagine it's easy because you have to think like somebody completely different from who you are. Having to think from their perspective for so bloody long. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. I was just going to say that from all the work that you're actually doing professionally, I feel yeah. like you wear so many hats already that you're well placed to do that. So again, looking forward to that. And Ideas and Futures sounds like a place we all want to check out as well. So thanks for that. I'm really happy we've gotten to talk. Would love to continue speaking with you in depth about a lot of the subjects that we briefly touched upon. The authenticity, there's internationalization of art, like you mentioned, and so many other topics and themes that we could go on about. And there is so much to uncover. But we are short of time. And this has been an absolutely wonderful first conversation. So thank you so much, Sadia, for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I would love to talk to you again. You've been a very generous interlocutor and I'm honored to be here. Hello out there to everybody who's hearing me. Thank you for listening. That's all I can say. And thank you for having me again. It is an honor. Thank you.